0: It is a joy to stand before you again and bring the Word of God. I've been uh, preaching last week and this week because uh, Brother Damon has taken a couple of weeks off with the birth of the new little one. And, and um, he's here with us this morning, he was here last week. He got to church early um, and I think we'll be in church a lot in his lifetime and that's a good thing and it is good to see you all this morning take your Bibles if you would and turn to the 16th chapter of the book of John we were here last week and I want to kind of follow up on what we dealt with last week a very important portion of scripture Christ is giving final instructions, if you will, to his disciples before he goes to the cross and will be crucified. This is the night before the crucifixion, so we are within a few hours of his trial or multiple trials and his sentencing and execution. So what is Christ saying to his men? One of them has departed to betray him. The other 11 are there. And he is giving to them vital information that they will need. In my mind, in some ways, just to survive. Especially over the next few days. So let's stand together as we read from the Word of God. We're going to pick it up in verse 16 and read down through the end of the chapter. And Our primary focus today will be on verses 23 and 24, but to give a fuller context, we'll read from 16 to the end of the chapter. Jesus said to his disciples, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire today as we open your word that you would open it up to our own minds, our hearts, so that we might be transformed in our thinking, transformed in our living in ways that will magnify Christ and bring glory to his name. We ask, Lord, that you would take the words of your, sermon, of your servant this morning and apply them to my own life and to the lives of those who are here, that we would heed your truth, that we would see you in your glory and beauty, Your majesty. We would see Christ high and lifted up. That we would be yielded to Him in all things. For His glory and our good. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. And I want again this morning to begin with a few questions that I want us to just contemplate. Some things to think about as we prepare our minds to consider the passage before us. And so here's the first question that I want you to think about. What do you think when you think about God? What do you think when you think about God? Or we could word it this way. How do you view him. How do you view God? Is he only a stern judge and one who is to be feared and rightly so? Is that what we think about when we think about God? Do we think about God as the judge? Let me simply ask a question. Again, is He the judge? Yes, He is. But if that encompasses the vast majority of my thinking about God, I'm missing some other very important aspects of His person. It is true that even a believer in Christ is to rightly fear the Lord. However, we can, if we're not careful, forget or ignore the fact that in Christ, that is, we as believers have this same holy judge becoming our heavenly Father. He is the judge, but He is also God the Father. In Sunday school this morning, we dealt with the Sabbath and with Christ working on the Sabbath. And one of the things that becomes very clear is that the Pharisees had turned what God intended to be a blessing to man into a burden. weighed down with extra biblical demands. And one of the points that was brought out in in Sunday school class here that we were in was that we too can fall into that kind of a pattern and very often we do so because of the fear of man. And I think that's absolutely true. I think there's also another aspect to this that even makes it more likely that we fall into this kind of a pattern, and that is that we don't understand who God really is. Or we get a a skewed view of God. We may understand much of His fullness, but we so emphasize one aspect of God that we forget some of the other aspects of God. And so we need to ask ourselves some other questions. Is He to you a loving, compassionate, caring Father who has your best interest at heart? So when you think of God, are you thinking always about this this judge who you must find a way to please? Or do you find some rest in Him, knowing that He is your heavenly Father if you are in Christ, so that you have peace, and comfort, and joy? I understand that there are certain duties that we should perform as believers. I understand that God does give us commands and we are to obey. But the reason for our obedience is very important. If the reason for my obedience is to try to win some kind of merit before a holy God who will judge me if I don't, I am wrong. I have become a legalist. If the reason for my obedience is a recognition of the grace that He has poured out upon my life and the love that I should have for Him because He first loved me. Then that is right. Is God the Father... For you, seen as one who seeks that his children thrive and know peace and joy. Or have we gotten into the mindset that he is so holy that we can never please him and therefore the joy is gone? Now let me ask you this as well as we As we think about this, is he so holy that I really can't please him in and of myself? That's true. No sinful human being can please him. But remember, we are in Christ if we have trusted him. And that has changed everything. And in Christ, it is possible to please our Heavenly Father. But again, we do not do it simply out of duty. We do it because we love Him. If you, if you love Christ, you keep His commandments. Our motivation, our mindset is very important here. And so let me also ask this. Did you know that your prayer life and your joy are interconnected? I really do think sometimes the reason that I don't have the kind of joy that I really should have is because my prayer life is not what it should be. And Jesus addresses that here in this chapter. Now before we speak to that specifically, I want to remind you that at the beginning of this final discourse, a somewhat lengthy discourse of Christ to his disciples, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The hearts of these men were troubled and that being the case we're reminded of the reality that troubled hearts are possible to all believers in all ages don't ever get the idea that um, we're going to be happy all the time you know we we sang that children's song in right up right outright downright whatever it was happy all the time and. And that really doesn't happen. I mean, you're not happy when your, when your loved one dies. Not happy. And even Christ was considered to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Troubling times come upon us, and times that not only take away happiness, but that would seek to take away our very joy. Troubling times had befallen these eleven men. Jesus was departing from them through His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. I mean, He was going to die and be buried and be gone for a little while, but then He was going to come back for a little while, but then He was going to be gone for a long time for the rest of their lives soon they would see his face no more very soon now they would hear his voice no more they would no longer be taught by him they would no longer be comforted by him they would no longer be corrected by him none of that was going to be going on and very soon they were going to be thrust out into a very difficult and dangerous ministry That he had warned them about. He had told them that whoever killed them was going to be thinking that he was doing service to God. And yet in the midst of all of this, Jesus comes to them and tells them that they can know joy. I speak this morning as one whose heart is... Tempted to be troubled to people whose hearts are tempted to be troubled. None of us are exempt from this. This is something that that really should apply to every single individual. Storms rage in our world. Storms that deal with family. Some of the most difficult of all. Storms dealing with health concerns. Storms that come at us from cultural corruption. Very often our conversations as we fellowship together and and we almost mourn together over the current corruption in our culture. And we speak in terms of if you would have told me when I was a young person that we would be dealing with this or that in our culture. And many of you know what I'm talking about. And probably the more close to my age you are, the more you, you understand that. Very, very early in my life, I can remember when people did not lock their doors when they left their homes or at night I'm not necessarily even advocating that we do this again certainly but when i went to high school if it was deer season half the trucks in the parking lot had a deer rifle in the car or the truck as soon as school was over those guys were all going to go hunt Nobody got shot in school. We have storms in our political system. People are completely divided. And to some extent, rightly so, when I realize where some people are, there's just no yoking up with some of that. Can't go there. There are storms that deal with false religions and false spiritual teachers. Storms come our way. And sometimes they come our way as a result of personal failure or personal sinfulness or the sinfulness of someone else. Sometimes they come into our lives as events uh that that have occurred and they're indirectly connected to us, but they still come. Is your own soul troubled? Is it possible to overcome such trouble and know true and lasting joy? And again, this is something that we are going to fight all the time. This is not a lesson that we learn once and then we just are off the hook. We We never have to worry about it again. Because the enemy is constantly seeking to destroy the joy that God would give us. And so this is going to be something that is reoccurring in our lives. Is it possible to overcome and know true and lasting joy? And the Lord answers that question with a majestic yes. With an amplified yes. And you'll understand why I use that terminology before we're done. Now, again, the context is important in understanding any passage of Scripture. And so look back, if you would, at verse 22. And let's read through verse twenty four again. This is where we want to really focus our attention. He says, So you also, or so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and you and no one will take your joy from you. And we pause right there and say, No one. And that that means just what it says no one. No human. And no demon, and not even the devil himself, can take the joy that God gives to us away from us. And then he goes on and says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Note that in verse 22, our Lord does indeed promise joy to those who follow him. He is in fact the focus of joy for the believer. One of the reasons that the joy can't really be taken away from us is because the joy is found in Christ himself. And he has promised never to leave us or forsake us. We will always have the ability to know this kind of joy. And here in verse 24, he promises that for those who pray in his name, their joy will be full or abundant or overflowing. So we have both the promise of joy and the promise of overflowing joy as we come consistently before the throne of grace in submitted prayer to God. A couple of other introductory notes are in order here. In that day surely indicates the time that followed Jesus' resurrection. The Holy Spirit will guide them into the truths that surround His death, burial, resurrection and ascension. And I want you to understand or I want us to get the context here because he is primarily talking not about all the rest of our prayer lives, though I think that can be included. He is primarily here talking about the things they don't understand. They do not at this point understand his death or his burial or his resurrection or his ascension. And they do not understand a myriad of things that are related to that. And so that's the primary concept here. Those, those events that you don't understand, those doctrinal issues you don't understand, those things that are going to be necessary for you as the disciples and the apostles then to write the Word of God and to oversee the writing of the Word of God, those things, you're going to get your answers. That's primary within this context. So the Holy Spirit's going to guide them. And though the Spirit has interceded for His people in the past, a new era has arrived and a new understanding of His intercessory ministry is soon going to be available to them. One commentator, a man named Leon Morris, agrees when he says, the primary reference will surely be to the time after the resurrection. It is not certain what meaning we should give to the word for asked. For in the first part of the verse, it may mean ask as a question or ask for a gift. If we take it in the former way Jesus is saying that after the resurrection, the disciples will not look for further information from Him, this points to an activity of the Holy Spirit who would be with them to teach them all things and remind them of all that Jesus had said and also to guide them into all the truth. We should probably take this as the correct meaning of the words. He's guiding them into the truth. So many of the questions currently on the minds of the disciples were going to be answered in the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. And many other questions would be answered by the Holy Spirit who would come to reside within them on the day of Pentecost. He guides them into all truth. And a second introductory thought here is, really comes in the word ask. There's one word that's used in all of these references here in our English Bibles, but there are two different words that are used in the Greek. And it does make a bit of a difference. D.A. Carson, who I found to be my favorite commentator on the Gospel of John, said in the verses before us, eritao, which is the first word that is used, you will no longer ask me anything, and iteo, the last clause, my father will give you what you ask in my name. In those two cases, he says this, it is just possible that in addition to this theme, which in any case is found in the last of the ver- half of the verse, The first clause with Eretao may address a more immediate concern. That is that the disciples' repeated requests for information. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything as you have been doing, for then you will truly know and understand. So he is making a little bit of a variance here, even in the use of the words. They're not going to ask Him like they had been because they're going to understand now what He was doing. And so that brings us to the fact that Jesus says here, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He will give you. Now sadly, many have interpreted this prayer promise to mean that one can tag the words in Jesus' name on the end of any prayer and God has to do what you want Him to do. Would you like to have a Rolls Royce? Pray in Jesus' name. Would you like to travel the world? Then pray in Jesus' name. Too much modern prayer is about the pleasuring of self rather than pleasing God. And men and women have totally misunderstood this whole idea of praying in Jesus' name. It is not three words to be tacked on the end of a prayer. There's nothing wrong with saying in Jesus' name and we... Almost all do it very often. But I wonder if we really know what we're saying. I wonder if we really know what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Men and women are seeking that which they think is going to bestow happiness into their lives while they neglect to pray for holiness. Too often we're guilty of the errors of prayer mentioned by James. Yet still expect an answer from God because we pray in Jesus' name. Well, What did James say were the, some of the errors that we make in prayer? James said... One cannot seek what is selfish and expect God to answer. No matter how many times you or I in prayer with the three words in Jesus' name. Many or most of our prayers tend to go unanswered, I fear, because we do just that. We're not careful. We'll be praying primarily for our own pleasure rather than for God's glory. Examine your prayers. Examine your motivation in prayer to make sure you're not praying as James warned about. I want to pray like that. Our Lord clearly stated that our Heavenly Father will grant what we ask so long as we pray in Jesus' name. So we must then ask, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Again, is this just three words we tack on at the end of a prayer? Or is it much more meaningful than that? Well, I have several things that I think are necessary to understand about this. The first is this. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray as one who is believing in Him. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray as a believer. In other words, this promise is limited to those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God is not obligated to, never is obligated to, hear the prayers of a lost person. In fact, the only prayer that he will hear from a lost person is the prayer of belief, of repentance and faith. So let me put it this way. No man can truly pray in the name of Christ who does not belong to Christ. No one can truly pray in the name of Christ who does not belong to Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're still lost in your sin, your prayers go unanswered. Examine your life. See if the truth be in you. See if you are Christ or not. If you are not, come to Him. On first glance, this passage might be deemed to be anything but evangelistic, and yet, we need to keep in mind that John wrote this entire epistle, or this entire, not epistle, but this entire gospel, in order that we might believe. John 20, verse 31, you, you may believe that Christ is the Son of God. He wrote so that you may believe that Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in His name. That's why he wrote it. And so again, D.A. Carson tells us, In the the historical setting of the farewell discourse, this clause becomes an incentive to wait just a bit longer until they enjoy the understanding thus promised to them. In the evangelistic setting in which John writes, this clause becomes an incentive to close with Christ and become a Christian. For only then can one truly settle one's religious qualms and questions and rest with quietness in the community of those who know God and are satisfied. He, he uses the phrase, only those who close with Christ. That's an old terminology that you almost never hear today. But if you read back in Spurgeon, or if you read back in some of the Puritans and people like that, they talked very often about closing with Christ. Those who fully trust in Him will be granted the answers promised to the disciples and will be granted the promise of prayers answered, I think, even in a more general sense. Would you pray in the name of Jesus? Then it is imperative that you believe in Him. Close with Him. Trust Him alone for your salvation. Get rid of any thought of personal ability, of personal work, of any merit that you can earn yourself and come laid out bare before Christ and trust Him alone. Only then can you pray in Jesus' name. But there's a second thing that we need to add here. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray as one who recognizes that he is unworthy to come before God in his own name. In other words, if I am to pray in Jesus name, I must understand that I personally am unworthy to come before God in my own name. I cannot come before Him because of some goodness in me, because I am unworthy, and so are all of Adam's race unworthy. We come before Him in Jesus' name because we cannot come in our own name. It is vital to remember that He is a mediator, and in fact, that He is the only mediator. Calvin said this many years ago Since no man is worthy to come before or come forward in His own name and appear in the presence of God, our Heavenly Father, to relieve us at once from fear and shame with which all must feel oppressed, has given us His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. To be our advocate and mediator, that under his guidance we may approach securely, confiding that with him, our intercessor, nothing which we ask in his name will be denied to us, as there is nothing which the Father can deny to him. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in the name of our mediator. In other words, humility is required in prayer. We come before our Heavenly Father not in our own name, not in our own goodness, not in our own power, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way that we can come before Him. Now again, perhaps we should Take a moment here to drive home the reality that Jesus is the one and only mediator, first Timothy chapter two, verse five, for there is one mediate God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. through the years, many have encouraged us to pray in the name of some saint or perhaps uh, in the name of Mary or Any one of a number of other things. But there is one and only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is our Lord. He is the one through whom we come. He is the one who gives us access to the throne room. He is the one who causes us to be able to cry out, Abba, Father. Those who seek to come to God the Father through one other than Christ have no audience with the Father. Their prayers are cries of the mute in a world without hearing. God will not hear We come in the name of Christ, we come under the authority of Christ, we come through our mediator, or we do not come at all. So those who pray in the name of Jesus are those who are truly saved, that's first. Those who pray in Jesus' name are those who are humble enough to realize that they can come to God only through their mediator. because we have no holiness or ability to do so in ourselves. And third, to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray under the authority of Christ, that is in submission to him. This is the one who really that really gets us when we, you know, we pray that we have a a fancy car or a nice bass boat or you know, whatever else may be deemed important or necessary to us. This is to pray only for that which is truly God's will. Thus we pray not for our own wills to be done, but for God's will to be done. We pray as Jesus instructed in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray seeking Christ's agenda, his will above all else. And again, within the context here, that primarily is talking about that he will reveal himself and his will and his ways to us. It's really strange that we don't think more about submission in prayer than we tend to. I'm often guilty of this, I'm sure, myself. But the very fact that I need to pray to someone else should remind me that I must be in submission to that one to whom I pray. For is The fact that I pray to him not indicative of the fact that he is far greater than I am. If he is no greater than I am, why should I pray to him at all? For what can he do for me that I cannot do for myself? And what can he do in this world that I cannot do myself if he is not far greater than I am? In the case of our Heavenly Father, infinitely greater than any finite creature. It leads me to a fourth thing that this means. Pray in Jesus' name is to pray expectantly, because we know that if we actually pray for God's will, He will answer. It's to pray expectantly. He promises here that as we do what He requires of us, that He will answer us so that our joy may be full. Earlier in His ministry, Jesus exhorted His disciples to pray. He taught them to pray. And I want to read through that entire short model prayer just to remind us. He said, Our Father in heaven... And notice he speaks there, our Father. That that demands relationship. In heaven, hallowed be your name. There is worship involved here. Your kingdom come, your will be done, that's submission, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. By the way, we know that Jesus Himself was not praying this prayer because He would have never prayed that because He was not a debtor. In another Gospel, we we read, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus never trespassed against anyone. He would have never had to pray that. He's teaching us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, he says, but deliver us from evil. But he says again here, your will be done. And thus when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray expecting the Lord to answer because we are praying not for our own wills, but for His. And His will will be done. So he gives us a tremendous assurance and finally, to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray changingly. It is to pray changingly. There's a, a ministry just um, a few hundred yards down the road from from our house, and and um, I, I hope they're doing some good. They're they're trying to do some rehab with um, men who have been involved in drugs and so forth, and and uh, I I get very concerned about where they are theologically and and so forth but they have signs everywhere that talks about a, a very familiar phrase prayer changes things you've heard that phrase prayer changes things I think we can improve on that prayer changes me I think that's an improvement on that I would also go beyond that to say this prayer itself doesn't change anything. The God to whom we pray changes things. Right? You ever hear people talk about, well, your prayers are powerful. I understand what we're trying to express, but the fact of the matter is, it's not the prayer that's powerful. It's the God to whom we pray who is powerful. Let's give Him the glory and not our prayers. And what is it that would make my prayer powerful? Is it the eloquence? How eloquent was Peter when he cried out to Jesus? When he was sinking in the sea. Lord save me. I don't think Peter thought for a second about I need to be eloquent here so that it'll be powerful and I But he prayed to the right person, right? Who is powerful? Who lifted him up when he was sinking? So that they both walked back to the boat together. On top of a non-frozen liquid substance that was not ever designed to hold a human up. Certainly not the walking path. Of the northern part of Israel. We need to make sure that we remember that it is not so much the words I speak, the eloquence of the words, or how powerful the words may seem. It is the God who answers and when we pray in jesus name he answers i think this is just a vital aspect of our lives if i were to ask if i were to do a survey even you know pass out papers and do a survey of even this congregation if i will if i were to ask what is the aspect of your life as a believer with which you are the most frustrated you think about everything that's involved in christian life what is the aspect of your life that that you find the most difficult that you find most frustrating that you find most trying I dare say at least half of you would say prayer. And if you read through history, some of the greatest prayer warriors who have ever lived were frustrated with their prayer lives. I read of one individual many years ago who they say would pray for three hours every morning before he did anything else and almost at times berated himself for not praying enough other men who the longer or the more difficult the day was the more duties they had in the day ahead would rise earlier because they needed to spend even more time in prayer. So if you're frustrated with your prayer life understand that that's a pretty common thing. But I think that one of the reasons that we are so frustrated at times with our prayer lives is that we We haven't even understood what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Again, it is not three words that we tack on to the end of a prayer. And then God has to answer. When Christ exhorted them to this, He was speaking on something that was a much more in-depth need in their lives. Now, we might say more about praying in the name of Jesus than we've already said. But we need to move on. We need to understand that a proper... Praying in the name of Jesus will keep us back from what I would call blank check attitudes in prayer. Asking in Jesus' name, again, is not God handing us a blank check that we can fill in and then receive whatever we want. That goes against some, at least, current ideas in our culture. Now, what will happen as a result of praying in Jesus' name? And this is, we're not going to take long with that. But I want to give you two things real quickly. The first is this, assured answers we kind of mentioned this all the way through, so I don't have to spend long here. Look, if you would, at verse 23 and the first part of verse 24. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Have you ever heard someone pray, and in doing so, they sounded extremely eloquent? Or heard another pray and felt that he or she would most certainly have their prayers answered just because of the thought put into them. Jesus does not say that eloquence is necessary to answer prayers. Nor does he say that great and deep thoughts are always necessary, although I do believe it's important to pray with some thought. What Jesus again did say is that God will answer when we pray in His name. J.C. Ryle spoke to this fact, saying, Above all, it is a duty in which everything depends on the heart and motive within. Our words may be feeble and ill-chosen, and our language broken and ungrammatical and unworthy to be written down. But if the heart be right, said Ryle, it matters not. Aren't you thankful for that? You do not have to be an English scholar to get your prayers answered. Because not, God is not nearly so interested in your grammar as He is in your heart. What is the heart attitude? If the heart be right, if the desire be God's will, if you truly pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord the Father will hear and He will give you that for which you ask. Here is an assured answer to prayer. And not only does our Lord give promise of answered prayer, but He also gives promise of assured joy. That's the end of verse 24. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Our Lord had spoken of joy in verse 22, and now he connects that joy to prayer and God's answers. And Leon Morris said, Jesus tells them to ask. And the present tense here is really keep on asking. And assures them that they will receive. And the purpose of all this is their joy. God is interested in the well being and happiness of His people. They will go through trials, but when they put their trust in Him, He puts a joy into their hearts that can never be removed. Notice that this is in connection with prayer. They are to pray in order that their joy may be made complete. It cannot be made complete in any other way. That your joy may be full is a strong statement that could be rendered overflowing or abundant or complete. Are you missing true and abundant joy in your life? Perhaps it's due to some problem in prayer. Perhaps you're not praying at all. Or in light of the text before us, perhaps you're not praying in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps you're struggling because you have a poor view of God Himself who not only is the eternal judge, but who is a loving, caring, heavenly father to his children. That phrase in Morris's quote God is interested in the well being and happiness of his people. You see God like that? Is that what you think of when you think of God? Now again, you can get off there because if that's the only thing you think of when you think of God, then you swing the pendulum too far the other way. But I plead with you, do not get wrapped up in this idea that God is the judge and, and, and that alone and that it is what I do that determines His attitudes toward me. If you are in Christ, it is not what you do, it is what Christ has done. And He sees you no longer as a lost sinner, undone, and doomed for hell. He sees you now as His child. Who as a loving father would go to his son who just skinned his knee and pick him up and comfort him he is willing to come to us and who desires that your life be a life lived in joy released from the burdens of trying to please God through what you do, rather than resting in Christ who has done it for you. And so if you're here today and you know not Christ, He paid the price of your sin, so that you could come to Him, trust in Him, and have your sin forgiven and move from what I must do which can never be enough to what Christ has done which is eternally enough. Trust Him. And believer, do not allow the burdens to strip you of your joy. The joy that is Christ Himself and the joy of answered prayer as we pray truly in the name of jesus let's pray together heavenly father Forgive us when we fail to pray truly in Jesus' name. When we perhaps would presume upon your grace rather than rejoicing in your grace. When we feel that everything is up to us when it was actually up to Christ. Yes, Lord, we should live obedient lives. We should live and strive to live holy lives, but that will only be accomplished as we're empowered by Your Spirit because the righteousness of Your Son is being put upon us. And so, Father, Help us to pray in the name of Christ and to know the overflowing joy that comes from that through answered prayer. There be one here today who knows not Christ. May that person trust Him today. Strengthen and encourage believers who are troubled. And may we grow to love you and your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, more day by day. Amen. Amen. If you would stand with me and turn to 401 in your hymnal, 401. And we'll sing all three verses of this song, Hiding in Thee.